I'm Alexis. I'm Mallory. And this is Newtcast. Today's topic is the Cursed Child script that came out last weekend. So warning, there will be spoilers ahead. If you have not read it, you may want to hold off on listening. off the podcast. (laughs) Still listen, but wait till you're done reading. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We have a lot to get through. Um, So much so, in fact, that we're planning on recording two episodes tonight and releasing part one tonight and part two next week because we all know that feeling of anticipation. So for our quick Potter watch today, um, J.K. Rowling in a statement said that she thinks that Harry is done now, that she's not going to write any more stories about Harry himself. Do we believe her this time? That's the question, Mallory. And Fantastic (laughs) Beasts 2 release date was announced. It's going to come out November 2018, so two years after the first one comes out. Which just means two more years of glorious podcasting about right. all of the things that we have to share regarding Pottermore and Fantastic Beasts and Cursed Child, because there's no way in heck we're getting through all of it today. Oh, man, no. All right, so our main segment today in the suitcase, as we said, we are going to talk about the Cursed Child, so let's go. Let's go. Basically, my overall feelings were positive on the most part. I felt like I had a lot of whiplash going back and forth. I'd be reading, and I'd feel great, and I'd be so happy to be back with these characters that I love. And then something would come along that would make me feel really frustrated, and I would get upset. But then something else really great would come along. (laughs) So it was a lot of back and forth for me, but my overall feelings were positive. Did I prepare you well? I think so. Okay, good. I actually think that I was almost over-prepared. Like, I was... I liked it more than I expected it to, as far as the plot goes. I didn't hate the plot as much as I thought I was going to. Yeah, that's really good to hear. I'm all for low expectations for this (laughs) very reason. (laughs) So for me, it was a really cool experience reading it, because I had seen it twice already on on stage. So the difference was a lot less than I thought it would be. I was very nervous that the nuances of the characters and everything else wouldn't come through, and that we would just be left with a bare-bones plot that was, you know, flimsy at best. However, I feel like we still got a good sense of who these characters were, and I do feel like the stage directions that were given do allow us to read into these characters more than I than I thought they, we would be able to. So today we're going to go into three different segments of reading this text. Uh, we're going to cover themes, characters, and the story itself. I focused most of my thoughts on this on individual characterization, and Alexis went hardcore into <laughs> themes. And also, she's experienced this story three times, and I've experienced it once. So she's just got a lot more for you. (laughs) But before we start on themes, I do want to talk a little bit about um, the fact that this is a play. It was always intended to be a play. Whether that intention influenced the structure of the plot, we're going to get into that probably in a later podcast, way far down the line. Today, we're just going to really focus on the text of The Cursed Child. What I loved about The Cursed Child is the overarching theme of love in all different sorts of forms, in families, in friendships, and in relationships. And so it was really interesting to to see how the theme and elements of love from the Harry Potter series played into this. Relationships are where plays in particular really excel, and I think we were so accustomed to novels 
So it was a little bit jarring for a lot of the Harry Potter fandom going into this different format because the novel really lends itself to exploration of the world, world building, and all sorts of elements of like the little nuances of the wizarding world as Harry came to understand it. Well, especially because we're getting everything from Harry's perspective when mm. we're reading the books, whereas in the play, we're getting several main perspectives, and it jumps back and forth. We do go to Harry's perspective every now and then, but we also go to several other characters, and we as fans are not used to that. Yeah, yeah. So I can see that being a little bit new and jarring for us. But I think where it excels is in those relationships. Because we are able to see so many different characters in so many different scenarios, we are able to have a better judgment of their character. So the first kind of relationship we're going to look into is the obvious, is the father-son relationship, or the parental relationship, because Delphi also, I think, applies in this case. And the quote that I think lends itself to this best is Harry talking to Draco. And he says... Quote, love blinds. We have both tried to give our sons not what they needed, but what we needed. We've been so busy trying to rewrite our own pasts that we've blighted their present. I think that is so important and so interesting because it not only affects Harry's relationship with his son, but it also has a lot to do with his relationship with the father figure that he had growing up that being Albus Dumbledore. He gets that whole love blinds thing from Dumbledore's portrait, and then he kind of goes back toward the end and is saying to him, why would you say that to me? That's <laughs> the worst advice ever, and my love does not blind me. But the rest of what he says is still true. It's the way he decides to act on that feeling that ends up screwing everything up really badly. Mm-hmm. I think that he comes to understand what Dumbledore meant about love blinds by the end of the play. I think so, too. I just really found it interesting that he, he went to Dumbledore as his father figure, seeking out advice from him, quoting him. A really key moment in their relationship is that Dumbledore's greatest advice comes when he breaks down and loses that whole wise old genius front that he puts on. That was so cathartic. Yeah. He, like, literally cries. And the th when he's when he's breaking down, he's actually talking about the importance of letting down your walls. He said, be honest to those you love, show your pain. To suffer is as human as to breathe. That's something that Harry really needed to understand and to learn and to apply with his relationship with Albus in particular. So we have that moment where Dumbledore finally breaks down and tells Harry that he loves him, which are three words that Harry never heard from him. Do you realize this? Which, holy cow. I didn't even realize that. Like, that didn't even cross my mind that the one parental figure that Harry had, like, he had Mr. Weasley and, you know, he had... He had, he had Hagrid to a he degree. He had Hagrid. But who he thinks of as his oh, father figures. Oh, yeah. He also had Sirius. He had a <laughs> lot of father figures, which is why it was so weird to me when he was telling Albus, like, I never had a father figure to look at and to show me an example. Or right. Whatever, well, I think he never had one that was steady. Yeah, and that's the thing is he just there were so many father figures. People in his life, entered but there and was left. Never one that was just always there. Right. And Dumbledore is the one that he like really represented Dumbledore's man through and through, even after his death. So I think that's the one that you know, from putting him on the doorstep to the final part points of the series. Well, it's interesting too because when I read Deathly Hallows, I really got the sense from the fact that he named. Albus, Albus, that he had come to terms with yeah. who Dumbledore was as a person and kind of understood that whole concept of, like, people can be flawed and still good, but still have really big flaws. And this play kind of showed that Harry really wasn't as there as I thought he was, just from that little snippet in the epilogue. 
Yeah. Something I love is when he finally takes that advice to show his pain. Um, that happens at the very last part of the play where he's watching his own parents dying at the hands of Voldemort. The moment Albus first sees what it's really like to be Harry Potter, first sees the pain and the suffering that comes with like having that lightning bolt scar, he takes his father's hand. That's. It. I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because when I was reading, I kept hoping and expecting, once they brought up the idea that Albus was going to go back in time with the Time Turners, that he would see more of Harry's experience in these yeah. and realize how not fun it was for him and see that perspective, and that would help him to see his father as more of a person instead of just this overshadowing dad that he has to live up to, according to everyone I, that's a really interesting thought I didn't even think about. Like, the potential of him passing Harry. Like, seeing Harry as he was in the books. Like, that could have been a really easy way to do it, but they didn't. Like, I was hoping that they would show him... And this was before, like, they'd really nailed down the whole, like, you can only be there for five minutes <laughs> thing. Yeah. Which, whatever. <laughs> um, I was hoping they'd show how isolated and outcasted Harry was in Goblet of Fire when the Triwizard Tournament was going on, especially in the beginning when everyone thought that he'd put his own name in and yeah. even Ron wasn't speaking to him. Like right, he was That was a time for Harry when he was really alone. He basically had Hermione <laughs> and Hagrid. I really appreciate actually that he saw Harry as an adult breaking down. Yeah, that's He needed true. to see Harry as he knows Harry in the realness of his heart. As opposed to, like, old Harry. And, like, wow, this is getting complicated. It allowed <laughs> adult Harry to really show his emotions without, like, having an awkward, you know, heart-to-heart yeah. -heart with his son. That is, like, how do I do this? It was a natural thing for him to be like, hey, I need to watch this. Like, I can't not watch this. It's like a train wreck almost. There, Albus is gripping his hand. And, and it says, like... Harry grasps hold of it. He needs it. Oh, was just gosh. Like, oh my gosh. <gasps> so that whole arc where Dumbledore teaches Harry to be honest, to show his pain, you know, as Dumbledore, the painting is kind of learning how to do this because Dumbledore himself didn't. It's just really cool to watch. Something that was interesting at the beginning, at first he tried helping Albus in a way that he would have liked to be helped as a kid. So he gave him the advice, like, hey, why don't you just make some new friends? I loved that he told him, like, there's nothing to be frightened of at Hogwarts. <laughs> yes, there is. There's like, everything to be like, frightened of no, at dude, Hogwarts. No, dude, Albus, I've defeated them all, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Been through it. <laughs> like, just walking outside alone at that school is taking your life into your hands. <laughs> the Forbidden Forest itself. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So, like, he gives him the advice of looking for friends. Because that's what helped him. And he gives him a Hogsmeade permission slip, which I felt to be so sweet and tender because that's the one thing he was never granted. Yeah. And so he was just like, okay, this is it. He's going to really appreciate this one. But Albus doesn't understand the significance because Harry hasn't been able to tell him about what that was like yeah. for him. And also, Albus is going through such a different experience in his childhood than Harry ever had to go through. Yeah. And then the one last thing... Harry, you'll do anything for anybody. You're pretty happy to sacrifice yourself for the world. He needs to feel specific love. It'll make him stronger and you stronger too. Ginny? Straight up wisdom. Seriously, I need to learn that. Like, I think everyone could learn that a little bit better. Especially though, Harry. Because he did sacrifice himself for the world. He risked his life for Lord Delacour's little sister who he had never met. Yeah. Like, so clearly, Ginny's right. You know, Harry has to show a different kind of, kind of get the message. Yeah, Albus needed to know that he was loved the way he was and that he wasn't loved in the way he ought to be. Harry needed to show him, hey, you're different, and I like that, which he does at the very end. 
He tells them, you're more like your mom. You're bold, fierce, funny, which I like, which I think <laughs> makes you a pretty great son. He loves him for his differences. He finally figures that out. Meanwhile, Draco and Scorpius. I got the feeling in the play that Draco and Scorpius's relationship was supposed to feel more dysfunctional than I felt it was. It didn't feel like they were actually that out of touch. Yeah. Other than Compar- just... I mean, compared to Albus, who's yeah. like the ultimate teenage angst. They had a lot of family strife going on, especially with his mom dying. Like, that's a huge deal. Yeah. And they clearly didn't talk about it the way Scorpius needed. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I didn't feel a whole lot of their relationship being that bad. It was mostly just the outside world and how they perceived Scorpius because of those rumors and things like that. Right. Was it different watching the play? I just, one line that really struck out to me, he was talking to Albus, where he's like, sometimes I feel like, I get the feeling that he's like, how did I produce this? Oh. And so, like, there's this, there's this distinct, like, separation where he's just like, he, he really cares, but he just doesn't know how to show his emotions. Well, especially because his father was so cold and distant. He doesn't really know how to be an affectionate father, which you can tell that Scorpius is the kind of kid who is going to respond to that really well. Right. And honestly, Scorpius, he's so much like Harry. Like, okay, let me just, like, I read this thing. It's so interesting. I haven't thought about this at all, so lay it on me. Okay, so the first day in the Hogwarts Express, Albus and Scorpius meet. So Albus has a ton of family expectations and a ton of siblings who are, like, known for being good at Quidditch and stuff. He's just got a lot on his shoulders in that respect. And he enters the carriage to see Scorpius, a boy who has been sheltered from the wizarding world, Hold on, I have a whole Holy thing. Holy Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> this is hitting me. He has no friends. He has rumors of a prophecy he had no part in creating and a pocket full of sweets. Aww. And later, he would later hear in a Dementor scenario his mother screaming for his name. Oh, man. So I feel like that's such an interesting, like, twist where Draco has to, like, deal with a Harry Potter-like son and Harry's having to deal with, like, a Weasley child, basically. Like <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. And I think it's really cool that there are these parallels, but they're not identical. Like, they obviously have their own unique twists and things. Love me some parallels. And then, of course, at the very end, we get the the resolution of, we can hug too if you like. Because every time he sees his dad, he's like, dad, hi, dad. Like, (laughs) (laughs) he just doesn't know how to handle his dad because his dad, I don't think he showed him very much affection. Not because he didn't want to, just because he didn't know how. Yeah. I just like that they hugged. Let's talk about the power of friendship. Okay. So, I'll say something, actually, if Ron in this play, and we will talk about this more later, but one thing that I did actually appreciate about him is even though he was played off as the bumbling fool the whole time, and he was comic relief, and he didn't get to just show a lot of his complexity as a character, he was still always there for Harry. That scene where they're at the emergency meeting that Hermione calls, and he gets up on the platform and is like, well... They're up here, so I'm going to be up here, too. Yeah. On the one hand, I didn't like it because, you know, you could have at least given him something a little more profound to say. (laughs) But on the other hand, he would. I mean, if he didn't have anything profound to say, he would get up there and be like, well, these are my friends and I'm going to back them up. I did miss the relationship between Harry and Ron. I don't think we got anything. Harry and Hermione, a little bit. I mean, they talked about their, their friendship. Ginny and Draco, especially. So the Potter books focus so much on the power of friendship. And while romance is present, Joe excels in the platonic relationship between Harry and Hermione, between Harry and Ron, 
That being said, the main friendship of the story between Albus and Scorpius is kind of fraught with romantic undertones, which I think a lot of people have picked up on. A lot of people picked <laughs> up on. I've had several people just be like, so I thought they were going to get together. Yeah. And they didn't. <laughs> I thought they would. And this was from people who I would never expect to right. be seeing any sort of gay relationship anywhere. So that was reassuring to me that I wasn't just misreading this. Oh, and it was pretty heavy handed at times. Watching it was even more so. Really? Yeah. Because they they have such like chemistry. Those two actors are wonderful with each other. The thing is though, like I expected it and I did want it to happen, but I also see the good in having it between friends. A lot of today's culture expects men to man up and to hold back their emotions, to put, like, a mask of masculinity on. They have to show, like, apathy and humor over any sort of, like, sensitive emotion. But here, in this play, our two main characters, who are boys, are oozing with, like, traditionally feminine traits. That's very true. And I appreciated it. Our our culture would expect those to be weaknesses, but this play makes them into such strengths And I think it's so refreshing to see a friendship between two guys where they can be open and honest, where they can be sensitive and caring, and they can depend on one another and recognize their weaknesses. They they turn the weaknesses that they have for their own purposes, like, for better or for worse, like, hey, we're losers, we know exactly how to humiliate people. (laughs) It shows that men can be sensitive, and they can have open friendships like this. Really, they can be themselves and be fine with that. And, I don't know, I just really appreciated it. Love each other and have friends. It's okay to let your friends know that you like them. I guess is what I have to add to that. Yeah. So that was refreshing. Something that was really sad about Scorpius's character is that he had no friends growing up. That is sad. Like, that one quote about him, like... I've always want I I always wanted to have a group of friends like Harry Potter and just my luck I got his son and I'm just like melting because he probably like read history books and then was just like I want to have friends and then he got to have a friend he did it's like a foil to Delphi's scenario where she had no friends and then she just let her loneliness breed that pain that breeds that hatred that Draco talked about, about Tom Riddle. Yeah, it was a nice parallel with uh, Scorpius and Delphi Mm -hmm. up against the same parallel of Harry and Voldemort. Like, look how these two isolated orphans ended up. Look how these two isolated children. One's not an orphan. No. We don't really know if Delphi's an orphan or not, or if she was just cradle snatched. Oh, jeez. So many thoughts about (laughs) Delphi. We'll get into that. (laughs) And that, that whole line from Draco about loneliness and pain and hatred coming from being alone, from being in that dark place and unable to get out of it. I think that's like the only line that could possibly explain Cedric Diggory and how he's used in this play. I still won't do it. We will get there (laughs) because we both have a lot of feelings about Cedric. I did like that they, that Draco did get to talk about how, you know, he was lonely because he went into Hogwarts with friends. Yeah. Yeah. It was Crab, Crab and not wasn't it? Not was Theodore oh, not yeah, was the other one that's he already right. knew from his like little pure blood club of his <laughs> dad's friends. And click. So it looks like he wouldn't be lonely, but as he says, Crab and Goyle are not the sharpest knives in the drawer. And I don't <laughs> feel like they would be all that emotionally available either as human beings. 
So the fact that Draco had to turn to, for example, Moaning Myrtle when he's going through a hard time says a lot about his friendships that he had, basically, that they were not really there. Wow, yeah. I have so many more Draco feelings after this play. Mm -hmm. Like, after the books, I I told Mallory this earlier, but I'm like, eh, I feel bad for Draco, but also he's kind of a jerk. Like, a lot of people were really into him, mostly because Tom Felton was hot. (laughs) Yeah. And they made him a little more sympathetic in the movies, but I just never felt that. I felt it a lot more with this. I think he definitely had a redemption here in this play. Okay, speaking of Draco, remember at the like the end of the play when there's this line that says, For the first time, at the bottom of this dreadful pit, they look at each other like friends. I sent Alexis a Snapchat with a lot of exclamation points. <laughs> yeah. that. I was very happy. Oh, you you also had a snap about like the fact that Draco even asked Harry if he was okay. That line, when he just was in Harry's office and asked him if he was okay, I was like, what? A character development for him to ask Harry Potter if he was doing okay and like to care about his feelings at all. That was big. Sensitive and friends. Love each other. (laughs) You could definitely tell that Draco had character development leading up, like since Deathly Hallows and into this play. Draco had grown a lot because A, he's no longer like, let's kill all the mudbloods. B, like he was able to distanced himself from his father completely and just did his own thing, married the woman of his dreams, who was a lot more like the Weasleys than like the Malfoys. So he was already developed, but he wasn't perfect. Like, he still was hating on the trio, still like bitter, just bitter about (laughs) Hermione being minister for magic and Harry being head of ours and everything like that. To see him develop in that space and then to see him develop just in the space of the play was really refreshing. And I just really love Draco's character in this. All right, let's talk romance a little bit. Can we just talk about Harry and Ginny first? They were great! (laughs) And it was so nice because, as we all know, their relationship in the movies was the worst thing. Oh my gosh. It was so bland. It was like eating day-old unflavored oatmeal, and I hated it. Poppy Miller's line where Draco's like, My son is missing, and she roars, And so is mine! Was like, (gasps) it gave me life. I was so happy about it because it shows that she, up to that point, had not been yelling. Here, Draco and Harry were having, like, this stupid little duel. It's because, like, they had so much pride. And here, Jenny is just like, come on, guys. Like, let's be calm adults about this. Like, she has this calm power and patience and just, like, determination about her that she doesn't have to be crazy like the other guys in this play. She's fierce, but it's in a controlled way so that when she lets it out, you're like, oh... It's in there. (laughs) She's got it still. Her reminding Harry that the best bits of him had always been heroic in really quiet ways was just touching. And then Harry looking at Jenny for her, like, approval before, like, even thinking about transforming into Voldemort. You know, just like, hey, I won't do it if you don't want me to, but I think it's the only way. Harry has grown so much. (laughs) Because old Harry would just be like, I'm not even going to show you that I'm going to the forest, Jenny, and I'm just going to murder myself. Like. Sorry, going back a little bit. I'm just reading my notes from when I was reading this. I wrote my notes as I was going, so I just wrote, Ginny yelling at Draco has cleared my pores and put breath in my lungs. Yes. (laughs) That's how much I love that line. (laughs) Also, I like how they both make mistakes. Neither Jenny nor Harry is perfect, but they both recognize their mistakes and they both, like, apologize sincerely. And we see them working through their difficulties together as a couple, which... yes. Just in general, pop culture is really nice to see because it's not that common. They're just so open and honest with each other. And then (laughs) Harry does the cooking. 
And I'm just like, <laughs> of course he does. He did it for years at the Dursleys. Like, he, he, the kid cooks. Whereas Ginny was the youngest child. Pretty sure she never had to cook. And if she did, she had to do it for her mother just begrudgingly. You know she did not <laughs> want to cook. <laughs> One of my favorite lines with their relationship is the whole, I'm lucky to have you, aren't I? Extremely. Mm. Uh, I forgot about that one. Ron and Hermione. So a while back, J.K. Rowling released a little statement saying that she regretted oh. <laughs> Hermione and Ron being together oh. and saying that it should have been Hermione and Harry, which I was so no. mad at her for. I think pretty much everyone who disagreed with her was like, okay, no take backsies. Like, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> and I don't know everyone. if this was just me projecting onto the play or not, but it felt like an apology for that. Because every alternate universe we saw, so in the first one, they were not together, and they were very clearly the worse off for it. Mm-hmm. Hermione is this basically bitter old school marm, wow. is what we get. I'm going to have a lot of words about that later. Okay. And Ron is in this marriage, which doesn't seem like it's necessarily a terrible marriage, but he's also very clearly not himself. Yeah. He basically just gets ordered around by his wife, which I um, didn't love, but I did like that it at least showed that they're very different people because of their relationship with each other. And then, of course, in the darkest timeline, they're basically (laughs) freedom fighters, and they're not together, but it's still clear that they mean a lot to each other. And then, of course, when they fix the timeline, (laughs) and Ron sort of reproposes. I thought that was really sweet. So there's just kind of a lot of reinforcement of their relationship in this, which I was very grateful for, and I thought it was well done. I definitely like how their relationship wasn't perfect. I think Harry and Ginny have almost a perfect ideal relationship. Yeah. And I knew Ron and Hermione together would not be like peanut butter and jelly. There would be some crunchy nuts in that too. Like. <laughs> but you know what? I prefer the crunchy peanut butter. So yeah, yeah exactly. They would get in spats. They have the entire book series, let's be honest. But I think they still are meant for each other. And then those alternate realities, like you said, definitely confirm that their love goes a lot deeper than the jealousy that Scorpius thought was like the kingpin. Okay, little sidetrack. I love the fact that their plan to get them back together was fireworks. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what? That was so interesting because I do not remember that at all in the play. But I feel like it has to be there because... It was, it was a bad plan. <laughs> yeah. kids thinking? Yeah. Alba's like, I have a sparky surprise. And they're like, <laughs> fireworks. Ron loves Hermione. It like, how just, embarrassing for Ron. And it clearly Ron. did not work, so. Yeah. Those fireworks still went off, though. Unless Scorpius stopped the fireworks and got, stopped Albus. Hmm. And so. I had not thought of that. Harry, like, we just saw mm. Harry Potter the Goblet of Fire from Harry's perspective, so we didn't see the fireworks that went <laughs> off after he jumped in the lake. <laughs> Oh my gosh! And then like all. Wait, of the- but then what about the Yule Ball? I feel like oh. okay, either this is like the best <laughs> discovery ever and was intentional, or it was just an oversight in the writing. Which let's be real, that's the more likely. But yeah. it's not as fun. So was that How before that or affect- after the Yule Ball? I was just gonna say that's that was before the Yule Ball, wasn't it? Pretty maybe, sure. Maybe they just thought it was like a Fred and George prank. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, I can see Ron going, like, super... Wait, no, wait, Ron was under the lake. Hermione was under the lake. Wait! Wait, why are the fireworks outside? They're not even out there. That that fixes it, then, because neither of them saw it, so it doesn't matter. Right. Wait. But so why did they bother with the fireworks if they were were under the lake? (laughs) (laughs) These two are idiots! (laughs) 
to be fair, they didn't have a lot of time to plan. They just sort of, like, went for it. Yeah, because Albus, who claims he's not like his father, is like, hey, I have an idea and we're doing it right now. I'm a genius. <laughs> Do you think someone said that something to them? Like, hey, uh, Ron, why were there fireworks? And you're like, what the heck are you talking about? You could just see Ginny sitting in the stands like, Okay, did Fred and George do this? And do I tell them? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. What a find. Anyway, shall we move on? Yes, let's let's move on. Okay, brief moment to talk about Draco and Astoria. Because I think Astoria is one of the most interesting and, like, lovable characters in the whole play. So do you actually get to see her in the play? No! Oh, that's the thing. I'm so upset about it. Yeah. Because she's a strong female character that's just like, sort of like the Molly Weasley loving metaphor almost. Yeah, she was there to generate man pain, which you know is my favorite thing Mm. when you kill off a lady to make the men sad and drive their story forward. (sighs) I know. And I feel like there's so much more that could have been done with her. But then like, it's a play and there's time constraints. You could tell the whole time Scorpius was not, like it still affected him. Oh yeah. From the Dementors to him managing, oh, maybe this timeline's different. Maybe she's still alive. And I have a headcanon. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. So, like, when he's talking about, hey, the times change and we change with it, and basically saying, I'd be better off here, but the world isn't better, so I'm going to go back and change it. Oh, yeah. Which was... Oh. Love that kid. Yeah. But I'm just like, sure, he might be better off, but honestly, I cannot see him being happier in that in terms of better off he doesn't he's not the scorpion king he's honestly he would not be happy in that timeline so it wasn't that much of a sacrifice to me to go back Mm -hmm. as much as it could have been unless his mother was still alive because he said that she wasn't alive in the first au Mm. he doesn't mention her at all except for her screaming in the second au so for me interesting because the world was darker they found some dark magic to keep her alive and so she was alive. He had to give her up in order to save the world. That would make that sacrifice a lot more poignant than it was. So that's my headcanon. I like it. Thanks. Accepted. <laughs> <laughs> Just to briefly mention and touch on the Albus and Scorpius, like, potential for a romantic relationship. I do think that most of their lines could be read in a platonic way, as they were intended to be read, clearly, because they kept putting Rose into the mixture. (laughs) Um, But I do think there are two lines in the play that you cannot escape from that link their relationship to that of Snape and Lily. Snape, when he's trying to help Scorpius, is telling him to think of Albus like I thought about Lily to get me through the hard times. I mean, how do you look past that? You can't. You don't. 100% him like linking that relationship with the relationship that Albus has with Scorpius. And later on in the play, I can't remember who says what, but they say friends always. And if that's not a loaded word in a Harry Potter fandom, I don't know what is. (laughs) Okay, characters time. We kind of touched on this a little bit already, but there weren't a whole lot of girls. And the ones who were there weren't there a lot. Nope. Rose was... I really expected her to be a big part of this play, and she was not. Me too. Between part one and part two, like, I expected still Rose to be put into part two somehow on, like, a dramatic level. And I recognize that, to a degree, that's just because I've been a part of the fandom, and people have been (laughs) 
headcanoning those three as the new trio for forever. Forever, yeah. And, like, anytime you see anything generated by the fandom about the next generation, it's pretty much always those three together as the new Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Right. So I recognize that that was sort of my own fault for expecting that, but also they should have just done it. (laughs) (laughs) She was barely there, and toward the end when she was, it was just as a love interest, which wasn't awesome. And also, I think we there was a lot of potential there for character growth that we didn't get to see because, let's be real, in the beginning, she was a pretty big jerk. Yeah. I mean, she basically ditches her cousin I when do. he decides not to go with her and try to find the coolest people to be friends with. Right. I, I do see she's 11 years old, and she has the expectations of her family on her of, like, she needs to make friends, and she needs... And so I can see her own pressures getting the better of her in a different way than Albus's was getting the best of him. And you could see, like, where she would get those traits from her family. You know, Ron wanting wanting to live up to expectations and, you know, Hermione being ambitious and everything. Yeah. Which is why I was disappointed she wasn't there more, because I thought there was a lot of potential to see a good character arc that we Mm -hmm. did not get to see. Mm -hmm. There was a little hint of it. Right. But it was played off as mostly romantic, not as Rose going through any kind of character journey. Right. Although, oh my goodness, there's one moment in the play that's not in the script. It's right after Scorpius and Albus get back in part two. Hermione learns that Rose did not exist in a previous timeline. And there's this silent moment where Hermione leaves the office and she sees Rose standing there in her Hogwarts uniform. And they have this moment and they just realize, like, Rose didn't exist. And they run together and have this hug that's just dripping with just, like, And they took that out? I don't think they took it out. I don't know if it just isn't in the script because that's just how they did the play. Oh, okay. Maybe it'll be in the next script. You mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah, so she was there. (laughs) Like, she had a really sweet mother-daughter moment that you just didn't read. Um, Another female that I was hoping would show up and didn't was Luna. I mostly just kind of got that feeling when they all started showing up in McGonagall's office and it felt like there was going to be the big seven coming together. But then... I mean, they talked about Neville going to help them, but they never actually showed him or gave him any lines, and then Luna wasn't there at all. So it ended up not happening. Whatever. I mean, if there's any character you'd expect to not show up, it's Luna. (laughs) She's flighty. That's. I'm pretty sure she and the son of Newt Scamander are off on their own magical adventures. They're gallivanting, and I'm okay. They're probably like in Russia or something, (laughs) like (laughs) trying to figure out where the Nargles are started. All right, so let's just go ahead and start with Harry's characterization overall. I loved it. I did too. I was hoping we were going to have like some debate here, but <laughs> I have so many feelings about it because I think some of the fandom were kind of disappointed in the books that he didn't have more PTSD from his childhood. I don't know, but he did. I disagree with that. But that was like sort of a train of thought. And then here people are complaining that he had too much of it. So I'm just like, you just can't be happy, guys. Like a lot of people's disappointment with his characterization was they didn't like the way he was behaving. Yeah. Which... He's always been rash. I mean, he jumps to conclusions. He lets his anger get the best of him. He's stubborn. We know this about Harry James Potter. Yep. So for him to be acting like that in this story makes sense still. We don't like it because, I mean, I don't like it when anybody yells at Minerva McGonagall. I'll take him down. Yeah. (laughs) But it still felt in character to me. There was one reaction I did see where people were saying that Harry would never, ever tell Albus that he wished he wasn't his son and I was like "Mm, strongly disagree 
Harry lets his mouth run away mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, just see how he handled the Lupin situation in Deathly Hallows. Yeah, oh yeah, that's a perfect example. Harry would never truly de- believe to his core that he didn't want Albus to be his son, but for him to say that in a moment of frustration and heated, yeah, hurt and yeah. anger makes perfect sense. Albus was pushing his buttons. Yeah, he's being super unfair. Like he's being a teenager, so it's understandable on both of their counts the way they reacted. And I think in that moment, maybe it takes watching the play as well. You you see the tension rising and rising because their voices get louder and louder until, like, first Albus yells at him, like, I'd rather you not be my dad. And he's like, I would rather you not be my son. And there's this moment of silence. And you could just see, like, Harry just... <gasps> yeah, well, that's the important thing, too, is he immediately regrets yeah. it and tries to take it back. Immediately, like, you can just see it. Just, like, it. It's just like a shockwave through his body, and then Albus like curls up and just closes up, Aww. and it's like the saddest moment. I I just saw it. It was so real. I felt like their take on Harry was true to his character, and that I really didn't have any major complaints about him. We talked a little bit about how Ginny is super in control of herself compared to like the rest of Harry and Draco freaking out about the scenarios, and I came to think of it like she and Ron are both the most chilled out people out of the whole gang that gets together at the end, like That's as true, Ron says. Yeah. Because they're Weasleys. I don't know why. There's something <laughs> about the Weasleys, man. They're just they're just a little bit more chill. They can handle things. They have handled like, how many kids at home? <laughs> they have a ghoul in their attic. <laughs> yeah. They can handle it. So I just I just love the Weasleys, that's all. Well, okay, let's move on and talk about Hermione. Hmm. I had conflicting feelings about her. Me too. I liked a lot of the way she was portrayed, and I especially liked a lot of the explorations into her character that we did, but there were certain things that just felt off to me, and it's almost hard to put a finger on. Hmm. There were just times, and one of those was just the fact that she was Minister for Magic. I read that, and I was like, oh, cool. It doesn't feel like her. You know why? Why? I just, like, rediscovered this. So I think when Rufus Scrimgeour came to give the trio Albus Dumbledore stuff, he, like, told her, like, hey, you should be in the ministry. And I think she kind of, like, flat out refused him. Yeah. He actually told her that she should be in, like, magical law. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, I would never do that. I want to do something worthwhile with my time. Yeah. And then she goes into magical law and then becomes (laughs) minister of magic. So, yeah. It's not too big of a jump, but I do see where that's coming from. I didn't really see it as out of character. It just felt off to me. Right. Which is fine. I just have to get over it. (laughs) And I think that that's sort of the problem of the structure of a play is because they don't have time or space to, like, explain some of these jumps that the characters go through. Right, which, as we said, 20 years is a long time. People right. can change their minds about a lot of things. Right. I do like, though, as Minister for Magic, she said, I will not be Cornelius Fudge on this one. I will not stick my head in the sand. So I can almost see her coming to That's that position. Hermione. Yeah, I can see her coming to this position thinking, like, I really don't want to do this, but I don't want somebody else who's worse to do this. That's true. <laughs> I can see her being a bit of a control freak in that sense. I really enjoyed the scene where they're trying to get into her bookcase, not necessarily because of the scene itself, uh-huh. but just the fact that she had all these books about dark magic on yeah. her bookshelf that like weren't even at Hogwarts, and they're commenting on it like, holy cow, Like Hermione Granger is scary. <laughs> but she's always been scary. I mean, yeah. first year Hermione was scary. She's just <laughs> the girl who brewed a forbidden potion in a toilet when she was 12. Yes. She's not to be trifled with. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she would have all these books just for the knowledge of them, but not to use them, is so Hermione. Yeah. But also showed that pretend potential of kind of 
taken a darker turn that I've always enjoyed about Hermione. She's good to her core, but she has the abilities that, like, if she turned bad, she would be scary. I did like the line where she's talking to Professor McGonagall. Well, first of all, McGonagall calling her out on everything. (laughs) But then her being like, Minerva, Professor McGonagall. (laughs) Their work slash friend relationship must be so interesting. Yeah. Because they're both so smart uh-huh. and so self-possessed. I could see them butting heads a lot. Like, yeah. as the Minister of Magic and the Headmaster similar. of Hogwarts. Like, they would butt heads a lot. I also really enjoyed with Hermione um, the fact that she did keep that first experimental time-turner. Yeah. And then later on we see the reasoning for it, which was, you know, what if there's what if another there's one? Another? And there was... Hermione's foresight. She's super prepared. Like, uh. That makes sense. So the the issues that I had with Hermione were mostly the ones that weren't the main Hermione. Okay. So like the AU and the younger one. The younger one that we see really, really briefly as their Dharma String students in book four. She has this line where she's like, if you're going to stand so close, I'd rather you didn't breathe on me quite so much. And for me, I'm just like, she wouldn't. She doesn't care. Like, she's just trying to watch Harry. <laughs> yeah. I don't and know. It just seemed I feel too like pointed. Was, that's, yeah. And also, like, she was really focused on the whole international magical relations. Yeah. So she's not going to go making enemies with Thermstrang students. Right. Just because, I mean, she was stressed out. I'll give her that. Right. She's watching her best friend fight a dragon. But I just never saw her lash out to anyone except for Draco Malfoy. Hmm. Like, she always gave people the benefit of the doubt. She does that. She freaking knit hats for ten hours. Like, she's just really caring and kind. And I think she had more nuances in that she had a softer side of her as well and i think the play really directed us to the scary side of her a little bit that's true we don't see like the hesitance of hermione Mm -hmm. we don't see like her self-doubt that often comes into play Mm -hmm. you know she she is she has a tender heart we didn't see as much of that yeah and then the au hermione in the darkest timeline (laughs) was one of the things that i would like to just block out of my book if i could (laughs) But, so here's my thinking on this. If the AU Scorpius Malfoy could be so awful, then I think that's when they're trying to say, like, if Scorpius could be that bad in a different situation, then anyone could be. Then Cedric could become a Death Eater. Then Hermione could become a terrible teacher. And while I don't agree with that, I see how they were trying to lay the foundations of anything is possible. I think it's just kind of a lazy story. Yeah, I see where they were trying to do that, but I still disagree with it. I do too. Hardcore. Because Hermione would never take ten points from Gryffindor for stupidity. Wait, are we talking about first AU Hermione? Second AU. second AU Hermione? Because second AU Hermione is... Yeah, I was wrong. Like, wild woman freedom fighter. (laughs) First AU Hermione when she was the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Okay. My bad. Because she took ten points for stupidity and then twenty points for assuring him that I am this mean. And I'm just like, this is the lady who, like, helped Neville Longbottom. Like, she put her neck on the line for detentions, and we know she doesn't do that. But she would do that because Neville Longbottom needed help. Yeah. I did not enjoy it. was a first period Hermione. No. But I do love Hermione in the sense of all the other things we talked about earlier. Let's talk about Ron. I was so disappointed. So I tried to say earlier the things that I appreciated about their characterization of Ron. So now let's talk about everything else. (laughs) I literally don't have notes on Ron. That's how sad this is. Uh, 
that's the thing is there's not much to say. Every time he shows up, he's just making jokes. He, I mean, we don't see any of his brilliant strategist come out. We don't see, like, how supportive he is. I imagine he's an awesome dad. Oh, yeah. We don't really I think out of necessity, because Hermione is so, oh, so, like, wrapped up in ministry business, and I can see Hermione being a little bit too into her stuff, and, like, f- not forgetting her family, but, like, not prioritizing it as much as she should, and I think Ron would definitely pick up the slack for that. I just don't think we saw that, because we never saw inside Ron's household. Mostly, I just felt like Ron didn't feel very relevant in yeah. this play, yeah. and he is relevant, so I didn't appreciate it. Yeah. I could see, I mean, they made him into a big jokester, and one support for that I could see is I could see Ron trying to be a replacement Fred for George. I could see him trying to step into that role and maybe taking it a little too far, Uh and that being the reason that he's being such a jokester all the time. But it also just didn't feel like they were doing his character a lot of justice, because you can be a jokester and still be all those other great things that Ron is that we didn't get to see. So, D minus <laughs> on Ron's characterization. He, he just didn't have a lot of good moments. I do think that he did provide more of the lightheartedness that the trio requires. Although it does feel like he's, oh, he's just being the comedic character. I do think him being the comedic relief in the trio is what released so much of the tension between Hermione and Harry when they were alone. And he has he has always filled that role. I mean, we saw that right. in Deathly Hallows when he was. But gone, he like, also does more than that. I think is the problem. Yeah, and saying. that was the thing is they they just kind of they one dimensionalized his character. I do like his line about being chilled out. <laughs> yeah, see that's the is. thing. Like his jokes, not all of his jokes were bad. Like those right. moments were right. fine. We just needed more. Different. We just needed other. Sides we needed of variety, Ron. and we didn't right. get it. And that's all the time we have left for our first episode, part one of our Cursed Child review. But stay with us. Next week, we will be releasing the second half of this episode that goes more in depth about the characters and about the story of the play. We're splitting this into two parts like a horcrux. (laughs) No, not like a horcrux. (laughs) It's like the Cursed Child. You're listening to our soul. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes because we're there now. Also, feel free to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter at Newtcasts, with an S, Facebook slash Newtcast, or at Newtcast.com. We would love to hear from listeners and look forward to discussing these things with you. Woohoo!